Good morning. I hope you're doing well. I'm glad to always spend this time with you, even though it's through a little tiny lens and I don't really even get to see you. Um, I'm excited to walk through the Bible with you this morning in an area that I think is very, very applicable for us today. Um, before we even get started, I just wanted to say happy 4th of July weekend. I don't know when you're watching this, um, but I hope you've had a good 4th of July weekend so far. And listen, if you're watching this, it's, it's likely that you're not coming to our physical setting yet. I know we're probably around half of our church is gathering in a physical setting at West High School, and then the other half are um, watching through video right now. And if that's you and you're part of that half, I'd just love to maybe uh, remind you of how valuable our missional communities are. I would assume that most of you are in one. If you are in a missional community, I just want to say really lean into your community during this season. You're, you're watching the same news that I am, by the way. So I have no idea what the future holds for churches in general, when we can meet, when we can't. I know that we're starting to see our phases of reopening pushed forward and then roll back and then paused. And it's, it's real confusing right now. And so I have no idea what things are going to look like in August and September. I would be guessing like you would. But I will say this, that just elevates all the more how valuable it is for us to be in close tight-knit proximity um, relationships with those that would be in our missional community or our DNA relationships. So if you're in one, really would love for you to invest more time and focus in that as this season rolls forward. Because our Sunday morning expression, who really knows what it's going to look like from month to month to month. And if you're watching this and you are not in one of our missional communities or what we call a calm group, a community on mission, really encourage you to invest yourself in one and maybe um, try one or two if you need to just to see what, which is a good fit for your schedule and for your family. You can find a list of these on our website. Just go to our very front, our front page and it will guide you uh, to where all of our missional communities are or you can email us and we can hold your hand and kind of walk you towards that because we have a good idea of which groups are big and which groups are small and we'd be happy to help with that. Um, so, with all that being said, I, I would love for you to open up your Bible to Philippians 4. We're going to keep walking through this letter to the Philippian church. I've enjoyed this slow walk through this letter. Um, I think this, this little passage today, it's been helpful for me. I hope it's going to be helpful for you. Um, Paul has just left a train of thought where he is telling basically the church, don't imitate the world because this is not your home. Right? That's what we looked at last week. Don't imitate the world. You're, you're not citizens here primarily. Your citizenship is with Christ. It's in a kingdom yet to come. Um, part of what this means to have this not our home means that we are going to operate as Christians a little bit differently than the world at large operates. One of the key areas in which we operate a little differently is in how we handle disagreements, even heavy disagreements. Okay, humanity has overall learned how to build relationships, um, build together, hang out until there's a heavy disagreement or until there's just a point of no return. And then what is in us is just to bail, just to push away altogether and build a separation between us and whoever it is that we now disagree with. And you think I was just describing the world at large. I'm describing the church. <laughs> this is what the church does. 
And what Paul does in Romans, and don't turn there, stay in Philippians 4, but he says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed in how you think as your mind is renewed by the gospel. And this means that when the gospel changes us, it edits even how we handle what we'll call today a heavy disagreement, a collision of sorts. It changes us. Listen, I don't know about you, um, but I love watching heavy disagreements. I love watching them in slow motion. I love seeing people collide with each other and argue. I don't know what it is. It's probably some sin in me somewhere. But if I find something on a news app or on YouTube where people are just kind of going at each other, I love to watch it. It doesn't make me nervous at all. There's just something in me that just just kind of like a fly to a light. Now, if it's in my own backyard, not a big fan of it, right? If it's around me, I don't want there to be any drama. I want everyone to be on the same page. I don't want anyone to have a heavy disagreement. In fact, it's hard for me to find peace until everybody agrees. So we're at this place that is helpful for me in this letter where Paul is handling conflict and disagreement in a very personal and a very real area. Um, there hasn't been any peace in the Philippian church, at least with several people. There hasn't been any. There hasn't been any resolution. And I think just as valuable as Paul's words are going to be to these Philippians, they're going to be helpful for you and for me. This is a word for me. This is a word for you today. So let's look in Philippians 4. We're going to go through verses 1 through 5. This is what the Bible says to us today. We're going to see Christ very clearly today. Paul says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Okay, what, what Paul is doing here is he's applying the gospel to relationships. And applying the gospel, that's a phrase we use a lot at Legacy Church. All it means is to very simply take the message, the story of God, the good news of God for mankind through the person of Christ who came to live, die, and live again for us at his cost for our benefits as he fills us with his spirit and prepares a place for us where he will once again come and collect us all and draw us unto himself. This beautiful story. Applying it means to overlay it on our real world in real time. That's all it means. The gospel is effective for our salvation, but it's also effective for our life. It's effective for our salvation, but it also gives us joy here. It's effective to defeat sin. It's effective to build peace. It's effective to satisfy us in a very unsatisfying world. So we take the good news and we place it on top of the grit and the grime of our normal days and even our stormy days, and we apply it. We apply the gospel to our finances, to our sex life, to our mouths, to our calendars, to our parenting, to our everything. And just to be very clear in this moment, the gospel is a door of sorts that opens up a place for us 
into another world full of beauty and full of belonging because God is so kind to us. He invites us into a family that we really have no business being in. And he creates a space for us that we certainly did not earn. And he gives us a grace that we certainly should not have gotten. And he doesn't give us a punishment that we definitely deserve. That's true. That's true. That is what the gospel does. But it also, on top of having, having the power of salvation for those who trust in it, it also animates us. It gives us life today, in our normal days and in our stormy days. So the gospel is not less than the power of salvation for those who trust in it, but it is more, understand. It's a lot more. The, the gospel is not something we graduate beyond. It's not something we put in our rear view mirror. We grow in it. We increase in our maturity and understanding it. We apply it more in increasing measure. I mean, I've loved Jesus now to, to date for 24 years, and I am still finding places and nooks and crannies in my life that I have yet to apply the gospel very well to. <laughs> and so I take it and I lay it on top of these real-world moments in real time, and I let what God has done for mankind address these broken pieces of me. The gospel has changed me back in 1996 when it brought me into this new kingdom, and it changed me last week. And it has changed me this morning. And here, Paul is applying the gospel to relationships. We get to see it in real time. He's taking the good news of God that I just described, and he's rubbing it into this collision between Iodia and Syntyche, which I'm sure were very cool names back in the day whenever their mom and dads named them this. Now, here's the thing. We're not even sure what the collision is about. We have no idea that's left to our imaginations, but it had to be pretty serious for Paul to kind of step out of character and name them individually. He calls them out. And this isn't even something that Paul does anywhere else. And this had to be awkward. Up to this point, Paul's talking to the church at large, like he does all of his letters. And then he just kind of takes a step into a couple people and specifically names them. Now, I've heard it taught in the past, growing up in the church, that these women were bickering over something small, as if maybe it wasn't even a big deal. But that's not information that we're given. We would be just kind of guessing that. I'm not sure why we would even assume that. I mean, it could have been something that was deadly serious. It could have been something that you and I would call a, a deal changer, a deal breaker. It could have been theological in nature. It could have been personal. There could have been an offense mixed in there. It, it could have been something... This started off just small, like a misunderstanding that built over time into something very big and got out of control. Whatever it is, whether it started big or whether it started small, God is using this passage to help these women, and he's using this passage to help you and me in this moment. Right? All of us. By the way, who could you put in the blank? If we were to take Iodia and Syntyche's name out and put our name and someone else's name, who would that other name be? How would we step into a passage like this where it makes sense for us? I've had a few names over the years. And when I say that, I mean I've had a few dozen names over the years of people where it took everything in me just to stand next to them, strive with them, be of one mind with them. It's been difficult to consider them more significant than I would consider myself. You see, applying the gospel to heavy disagreement and offense is one of the hardest things that we can do. I mean, just ask these women, Eodia and Syntyche, which were not just average people. These are seasoned church planters. 
There's a rich textual history between Paul and these women. It's very likely that these women were with Lydia back in Acts 16 when Paul stepped in and planted this church. He, he says as much, and he even mentions Clement being a part of this crew. And we don't really know who Clement is beyond this passage. It's just obvious that these are people that walked alongside Paul as they planted this church. There's history. And I feel like today in 2020, in what is July now, July 3rd or 4th of 2020, we need this passage to get as much airtime as possible. Because listen, I don't know if you've ever had a personality test or assessment before, whether it is the Strength Finders or the Enneagram or the DISC or the Myers-Briggs. I don't know what it is, but there are so many tests out there that show us how different we are from each other. Whether it gives you a number or a color or a, some sort of a description or a spirit animal, I think one thing we all know is that some personalities get along well with each other and some don't. Some just straight up don't. And that alone causes turbulence. Face it, some people bug you, right? Some people just straight up bug you. They didn't even do anything wrong. You just don't like them. You don't like what makes them tick. You don't like how they talk. You don't like how they carry themselves. And here's a newsflash, they probably don't like you either. <laughs> They're probably not a big fan of your personality. This is difficult alone. Add to this reality where our personalities don't always mesh, the fact that we have different opinions, that we have different convictions and ideologies, and now you have a mess. This is why, by the way, Thanksgiving is so much of a powder keg, right? I mean, you're with family. It doesn't get any closer than family. And still, that alone shows us how easy turbulence can be between one and another. When COVID-19 ripped through legacy, when it ripped through all of us like a hot knife through butter, I was a little bit shocked how different and diverse we were as a church. I mean, I know that we're different. I know that there's diversity at Legacy, but I just, I guess I imagined that because we're, we all feel like we're kind of on mostly the same page when it comes to doctrine and philosophy of ministry, that when it came to something like a virus, I felt like probably all on the same page until the survey started rolling in. And I started reading people's heart. And then I realized, wow, we are a lot more diverse than I originally thought. We're kind of all over the map as a people. And this was before a recession and before the racial trauma that kind of flooded in on us and before all the politics that wraps itself around all of it. Our differences are on full display right now. And you've seen this. You've been surprised, haven't you? Haven't you looked at Facebook or Instagram and thought, huh, I didn't know they believed that. I didn't know that they thought that. Interesting, right? It's probably shocked you as much as it has me. Our crisis has amplified discord. In times of peace, all we have to really deal with is personality differences. But in times of crisis, it amplifies the discord, makes a bigger deal of it. It's why we're a church full of MAGA hats and Black Lives Matter t-shirts. We have people that carry a weapon and we have people that think that that's really stupid. We have people that cannot wait for the vaccine to come out we have people that aren't interested in taking that vaccine no matter what. We have masks. We have no masks. We have so many differences. So many differences. 
and best yet, we are a church that is not afraid to enlighten everybody on Facebook and Instagram and everywhere else so we can let everyone know why what we think is the best thing to think, right? That's why this is so good for us today. You see, Iodia and Syntyche, they don't have anything on us. <laughs> we have so much more to disagree on than they did. How on earth can we do what Paul says here and agree in the Lord? That's the key phrase. That's what I'm zooming in on. That's what Paul is ushering these women to do, is to agree on the Lord. How can we do that? And what does that even mean, to agree on the Lord? Where are the edges to that? Does it mean that we all have to be on the same page with all Christians at all times on all issues? Is that what it means? For instance, if the disagreement happens to be on police funding, or deleting statues, or whether or not white privilege is a real thing, does that mean that someone has to surrender their views and their opinions in order for there to be agreement in the Lord? What if it's the shape and the mode of baptism, or whether alcohol is okay, or the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Does this mean that somebody's theology has to evolve and morph to match everybody else's for there to be agreement in the Lord? What if it's an offense, like a real hardcore collision, where you have people that maybe they're, they're done yelling at each other, but they cannot agree on what the real problem is, who's at fault, who needs to apologize, who needs to take the initiative? What if you can't even agree to disagree when it comes to very personal offenses? If agreement in the Lord means consensus among all Christians in all matters across the board, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. Because listen, there's pastors in this town that love Jesus deeply. I don't agree with them. I don't agree with them. I, frankly, I don't agree with some of you. I don't agree with some of my family members. <laughs> what do we do with a passage like this where it says that we are entreated to agree in the Lord? Do we skip it? Do we read into it what it doesn't say? How do we handle it? And before we even answer this question, how do you think this looks to an outside world looking in? From people outside the fishbowl observing the church, what do you think they see? You know, before I was a Christian, or maybe even when I was a brand new Christian, I couldn't have told you the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian. Could not have told you the difference between an Anglican and an Episcopalian. Did not know. And anytime somebody took it upon themselves to try to explain to me the differences between all the different denominations, I just, I mean, all I heard was religious calculus, and I just started thinking about college football and chicken wings as, as hard as I could, because I just couldn't contain, I'm just not that smart, right? And maybe you've experienced the same thing. Drive right down Cumberland Avenue here in Knoxville, and it is the Baskin Robbins of religions, right? Big Baptist Church, Unitarian Church, Methodist Church, Jewish Synagogue, and then a Presbyterian Church. Not just a Presbyterian church, but second Presbyterian, which provokes the question, is there a first? And why do they say first and second? Why didn't they just come up with a name? What does that even mean? It's confusing. Straight up, let's be honest. It's confusing for a watching world. What kind of agreement are we supposed to carry? How much agreement? You see, Paul is leading us to a very powerful kind of agreement, an agreement that makes room and space for diversity. That's what I'm excited about. It creates space for our differences. And this isn't the first time he's mentioned it, even in this letter. We'll go back in chapter 1 and verse 27. Paul says, 
that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. Basically saying, can we just be congruent in thinking the same things? Paul is leading you and me to agree on the crucial things, the non-negotiable things, what we're going to call today closed-handed issues, right? But then at the same time to extend charity in what we'll call open-handed issues, negotiable matters, right? See, the gospel is a lot of things, as we saw when we first started this passage, but it is not a clone factory. It's not trying to make you and me identical to each other. It is building a diverse people, heavy in diversity, different in the way that we think and our passions and our convictions and our opinions. I mean, I have views on climate change and on politics and worship music and carbohydrates that you probably don't have. And that's okay. It's not only okay, I think it's beautiful. And I think it's healthy that we have this much diversity. I mean, listen, there are things that we fight for where we agree in the Lord. Um, the things that matter, the closed-handed issues, the non-negotiables, like the character of God, who God is, the fact that He's omnipotent. He's omnipowerful. He's omni-knowing. He's before time. He's a good God. Right? These are things that the Trinity, that God is one and God is three, that the Bible has no error in it. That the gospel is sufficient for everything that we need. That man's chief end is to enjoy God and glorify God and how much we enjoy him. There's really no room for wiggle in these things. Those are closed-handed issues. Top-shelf items, non-negotiables, right? There are those. So listen, even the pastors that I disagree with, the ones that, that might be a little off in how they see baptism in the way I do or communion in the way I see communion, we still, when push comes to shove, can go to the place where we can stand next to each other, for most of them, not all of them, and we can be in one direction, with one mind, with one heart, for one goal, for one king, for one time forever. I mean, we can do that. We can worship together, stand together, strive together, count each other more significant than ourselves. We can agree in the Lord. I think that's what Paul's getting at. Agreement on open-handed issues, negotiable ones, that's powerful when you can pull that off, right? But it's not necessary for unity to happen. Don't have to have it. Speaking in tongues, how you vote, homeschooling, vaccines, your view on masks, your view on taxes, electric cars, vegetables, you fill in the blank, right? None of these are gospel level issues. They're not on the top shelf. They're on the second shelf. Still valuable, still important, but they don't keep us from standing in agreement in the Lord. They don't keep us from doing that. They allow us to strive together still, flavored differently, nuanced differently. We, and some people might even have a higher preference on foreign missions than they do local missions. And some are really big on their neighborhood and they're not big at Vietnam. They're not, so we, we all have different passions and different emphases in our life. I think one of the things that we do, and this might have happened in the Church of Philippi, is we're very good as a Christian people at taking an open-handed issue and making it a closed-handed issue. Taking something that is 
negotiable and making it non-negotiable. Moving something from that second shelf all the way up to the top shelf. We're very good at that, right? And we jeopardize unity when we do, and we cause collisions whenever we do, and it keeps us from standing in unity together with one mind. It keeps us from doing that. And maybe that's what happened with Iodia and Syntyche. Maybe they just found a deal breaker of an issue that couldn't move beyond it, a separation issue. We don't really know, but it's not unlikely because we do this. You've heard it, right? If you don't believe that Jesus comes back before the rapture or Jesus comes back after the rapture, or if you can't believe that we are supposed to read out of this version of the Bible only, if you don't vaccinate your kiddos, if you don't wear a mask, if you do wear a mask, if you're for Black Lives Matter, if you're not, if whatever, if whatever you are, I cannot move forward with you. I can't, I can't stand next to you. I can't strive with you. I've gotten good at this. We've also gotten good at allowing weeds to grow inside of our offenses with each other so that we cannot agree over even the basic things of a disagreement. Like, who's wrong? Like, what, what sin was committed? Who is grieved? Who should be stepping forward? What should an apology sound like? How can we reconcile? Because we can't do this, fellowship is broken. So again, who is your Eodia? Who is your Syntyche? If you are in this passage, you walk into the room, they walk into the room, you want to walk right back out of the room. It's hard to be in the same room with them. I mean, who is it that you're unable to stand and strive with? You can't worship God with them. There's a wall between you and them. What is that wall? Is it a, an open-handed issue that became closed? Is it an offense? What has created the barrier between you and them? Because here's the truth. Your inability to stand together with one mind and one heart for one reason, your inability to do that is preaching an anti-gospel. It's going against the grain of God's good story. So not only is it not applying the gospel, it's applying an anti-gospel. That's a problem. You see, the gospel ultimately, among other good stories, is the story of terrible enemies, right? We are enemies of God with irreconcilable differences with God. And he comes and extends the hand of friendship to you and to me. Now, God does not ignore our hatred for him. He just deals with it. He just contends with it. He doesn't forget the fact that there is a disagreement, even a heavy one. He just takes care of the disagreement for our benefit, and he does so at his cost because he initiates reconciliation with us. This is a big part of the gospel. So when it looks at irreconciled books, he balances the books. He purchases peace for us. God, in effect, in his own gospel, says to you and says to me that, hey, we're different. We're heavily different in the things that matter. But I'm going to cross the aisle, and I'm going to strive with you, and I'm going to stand with you, and I'm going to extend my hand of friendship to you. And it's going to cost me, and it's going to benefit you. I will offer reconciliation. That's the gospel. And we are a people that are reborn into this ministry of reconciliation. Now, but we're also people that are born into a church together. So what we're going to do is, wait for it, we're going to hurt each other. We're going to blister each other. We're going to misunderstand each other. We're going to have heavy, heavy disagreements with each other. And yet, we will also have the ministry of reconciliation to offer each other. And the whole world watches on and sees it. It's beautiful. 
We can extend charity where we need to extend charity. We can stand together. We, we, I mean, your gospel is intensely practical when you just stand back and look at it. This is how Paul describes this ministry of reconciliation to the Corinthian church. He says this in chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay, this is a big deal. He mentions reconciliation five times. We easily toss this aside. We mow through this. And so we bump into our Iodia or our Syntyche and we develop a moment of disagreement or offense. And then what we'll want to do is bail on the group, bail on the relationship, bail on the church, bail on the church capital C, bail on Christianity in general, or we pray and hope that they bail so that we can stay. But we don't want to reconcile. We read this and we think it's a beautiful thing that God has done something for us, but we do not want to extend it to anyone else. Listen, if you're in a missional community, this is something that you're going to really want to kind of soak in and anchor yourself to a little bit. That's where it's most important. That's where the price tag is the highest when it comes to disagreements and relationship, right? We can say that we're a people of tight proximity. We can say it all day long. We can put it all over the website. But if we are a Sunday-only type of Christian or type of legacy member, and then friends, listen, that sanctuary is about 15,000 square foot. You can walk in and sit on one side and never have to say a word or blink an eye at a person that you have a heavy disagreement with across the room. It's when you are on mission with that person. It's when you're in a living room with that person. It's when you're bearing your soul and giving prayer requests or they are doing the same. It's when you are doing life together tightly in close, close proximity that this makes sense, that this is important, that this is valuable. That's where the rubber meets the road, when you're taking communion at the same time, when your kids are playing together, when you have to keep looking at them. That is where the rubber meets the road. And if you're unable to do this, you're unwilling to do this, to do life with those that you fiercely disagree with in non-essential issues, or you're offended and you've not been able to get into it, if you are unwilling to do this, to apply the gospel in this way, be ready to be very lonely. Be prepared to be very lonely. The only way to love others like this, by the way, and reconciliation, is to be loved, to, to enjoy reconciliation as it comes to us, when you are resolved that God likes you and loves you, when you can celebrate the fact that he reconciled you as a villain, he came to you when you least deserved it, if you can enjoy that, then you are free to love others with no strings attached. You're free to walk alongside others with very big differences and heavy disagreements. And you can do so just fine. One mind, striving together, one direction. No, we don't have to agree on everything, but we are close. We agree on what matters, the core essentials. This is so important for us, guys, because, I mean, look around. Our church is full of people that are going to hurt you, misrepresent you. They're going to reject you. They're not going to tag you in a post. They're going to forget to invite you to a thing 
They're going to disagree with you on alcohol. They're going to fail you, right? This is how we handle each other. We're going to betray each other. We're going to forget each other. And the truth is, is not only is that stuff done against you, you are a perpetrator. You do that to others as well. And that is how Jesus finds us all, denting each other virtually. But this is what love says to us. Our captain, our hero says to us, I will sacrifice for you even if you hurt me. I'll cover the distance even if you betray me. I'll work hard even if you stab me in the back. And we did. I won't ignore the pain, Jesus says, but I will deal with it, and we will move forward. It's a beautiful gospel. So how do we take a gospel that's applied like that and walk in the light that that gospel casts? How do we walk forward with these truths coming from the Word? I'll give you a couple practical ones, and then we're going to get out of this sermon. One is recruit a broker of peace. Or, if it's not you and you're watching two other people kind of collide, then you consider becoming a broker of peace. But we need a third party sometimes. This is what we see in verse 3, right? Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. All right? Now, we don't know exactly who this true companion is. Some of your Bibles say yoke fellow. doesn't really matter. It's probably the lead pastor of the pastors of the plurality at this place. Maybe it was the one that preached and taught the most. It was very likely the one that read this letter out loud. And Paul leads him to help them. And that's what's happening. Because sometimes in these types of altercations, when there's a knot, when the two parties come together and they try to untie the knot, sometimes it just gets tighter. <laughs> sometimes it gets worse. And they just need a mediator, a, a fresh pair of eyes and ears that carries wisdom and is able to see in and corroborate and give an accurate representation and be an advocate. And someone that can carry the word from the outside looking in and really help. And that's what Paul is suggesting right here. I mean, is this not in effect what marriage counseling is? Some of you have never been in a marriage counseling situation. You need to be. I don't even know if your marriage is in good shape right now, but I guarantee if you've never had marriage counseling, you probably should. Because it's amazing whenever you let somebody else into that aspect of your life, what they see, and how they're able to kind of help you. I, when me and my wife have been in those situations, sometimes I'm able to understand her better because that third party is saying some of the same things with different words. And sometimes we need an advocate because we can't really reproduce what we're feeling. Or sometimes we just need a third party to say, look, both of you are being morons right now. Both of you are missing the big picture. We need help. This is also why, part, partly why in Matthew 18, Jesus leads us to loop in a third party in a discipline setting. And don't let that word freak you out. Just a, a discipleship setting. Not just for corroboration, but also for advocacy, right? For, for accuracy. He says this. This is Christ in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Listen, if you're in an impossible situation with somebody, whether it's an offense or a heavy disagreement, get some help. Get some help. If you're on the outside looking in, and you see people colliding and slamming into each other, even if it has nothing to do with you, you should step in and broker peace. You should do this. You should be the initiator. And I know what you're thinking, but Luke, I mean, wouldn't I be butting into their business? 
Yes, you would. You should butt into their business. Listen, get all up in that stuff. Butt into their business to the glory of God. I don't know why all of a sudden we thought that that was such a, a big bad no-no to butt into other people's business. You should be. This is community. <laughs> Fine, and this is just a small, if this is you and you're maybe in the, in the midst of mediating and brokering peace with another broken situation, this is just a, maybe a, a point under a point under a point, a hard application. I found it to be most useful to find the most, what I perceive to be, who I perceive to be the most mature in the collision and appeal to them to initiate the peace process. Somebody has to go first. Somebody has to say, I'll go first. Okay? And so I found it helpful to find who I felt like was the most mature and usher them to do that in that case. It speeds it up a little bit. And on that, maybe the second hard application is you, you initiate the peace process. You initiate reconciliation. You do it. Notice I didn't say initiate it if it's your fault. I'm saying initiate it even if it's not your fault. You should start the ball rolling on reconciliation regardless of whether you feel like you started it or did not start it. Foster agreement. Take responsibility for a mess, even if you feel like you did not create that mess. Because again, that is also a picture of the gospel, where we have Christ initiating reconciliation with villains, pure villains, and you and in me. We didn't chase him down. He chased us down. He, he uh, brought reconciliation and provided it to us. And so what he has done by building this church of people that are in his image He's outfitted us to do the very same thing by offering reconciliation to each other. You see how diverse we are? <laughs> how much we need a gospel to lead us past our heavy disagreements and our offenses? We're diverse. We're so different, you and me. You're so different in your living room from the people across from your living room or the people that you're in community with. We're so different. And yet we see in this passage that we're also written in the same book the book of life, by the same grace, by the same hero. We're in the same book. This book of life, we're not going to get into it. It's mentioned a few times in Revelation. Christ teaches on it once in the Gospels. It's a record of those who God has called his own from even before time began. In Eodia and Syntyche, their names were in this book. Right there, right with each other. Here they are in a heavy disagreement, probably Probably one's an eight on the Enneagram and the other's a whatever, a two. And all they do is this these days. And yet when it comes to the book of life, their names are right there together. That's awesome. Those you have heavy disagreement with today, those who are offended with you and those whom you are offended with, you have one thing in common, that God has given you grace. And if they love Jesus just like you love Jesus, you're written in the same book of life. For all we know, you're written on the same page, whatever that even looks like, right? The same book. Listen, friends, this world, it's looking for a way to celebrate diversity and not eat each other. And it's never been able to figure that out. Never been able to figure that out. The church is God's display of how the gospel makes us able to be diverse and unified at the same time. At the same time. Offers us this example of reconciliation and then gives us the power to reconcile. 
So listen, if you are watching this and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're searching, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're not sure about all of this, you need to know that the war between you and God is a real war. It's very real. But the gospel is perfect for enemies. The gospel's perfect for those of us who are offenders. The gospel's perfect for those of us who heavily disagree with everybody. It's perfect for rock throwers and enemies and villains. And if you're far from Jesus, I hope you see how the gospel affords us as Christians peace with one another. But most importantly, I hope that you see that the gospel affords us peace with God himself. Not just, not just horizontal peace with each other, but a vertical peace that allows us to sleep at night. It gives us confidence in the world to come. This is how Isaiah describes the world to come in the 65th chapter. He says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is good news, that creation won't devour each other anymore. I know, I know it's talking about lions and ox and wolves and lambs, but I mean, even you and I, that we will have a day um, in our next world where we are no longer devouring and eating each other. It's better. It's also better news, though, that we are going to trust in the Lord and not be devoured by death and chaos itself. So listen, if this is you, I hope you see, if this is you and you are struggling to apprehend Christ and trust your life to Christ. I hope you see that what Jesus has done has made us peaceful with each other, but mostly what Christ has done has made us peaceful with himself by his own work, at his own cost, for a mess that we created. So make this a day that you turn from trusting yourself. Make this a day that you resolve to invest your trust in Christ instead. That's, That's what I submit. That's what I pray for for you. So listen, I love you guys. This is all we're going to cover today. We'll continue next week, but I hope you're doing well. I look forward to seeing you all again under one roof someday. Um, But until then, if you need anything, be sure to contact us or contact your comm group and let us help you as a church. If you need anything else, you can go to the front page of the website and it will guide you to the various ways in which we can serve you during a time like this. But I love you as a leadership team and as a staff. We're praying for you. Have a great week. God bless.